The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, tell your inner child to go play outside and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 367 with guest Udi DeHaan, recorded live Tuesday, July 15, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, give me ambivalence or give me, um, whatever, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. Richard Campbell still on vacation, but he'll be here for the interview with Udi Dahan in just a minute. How are you all doing out there? It's uh, It's been a great summer for me so far. Uh, what's going on? I'm doing a lot of recording in the studio, a lot of producing and editing and, and all that kind of stuff. My brother Jay and I are working on our second album. We're having lots of fun doing that. Of course, doing these shows for you twice a week and uh, DNR TV, and having a good old time up here in New London. Drop us a line if you uh, have something to say. .NET rocks at franklins.net. Now let's get into Better Know Framework. And of course, Better Know Framework is a little routine that I do to shine a light in various hidden corners of the .NET framework so that uh, you know what's there. And over time, by osmosis, you will learn uh, what what's in there if you don't have the time to crack a book or get online and read websites all day. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about the system.data.services namespace, which is where uh, ADO.NET data services lives. You might remember uh, .NET Rocks show 289 with Pablo Castro on Astoria. That was the code name for Microsoft ADO.NET data services. And also show number 349 was Scott Hunter on Microsoft Dynamic Data. 
Uh, Microsoft ADO.net Data Services is a nice little uh, namespace that uses REST-style HTTP calls to do data services using WCF over the Internet. Uh, it's kind of a nice addition to the web services and WS-star style of, um, of uh, web, uh, essentially web data services. But this wraps it up in a nice little REST, uh, non-SOAP kind of uh, tool. And the main entry point for developing an ADO.NET data service is the Data Service of T class. So you want to check out the Data Service of T class. Of course, you want to listen to those shows and go to the uh, Astoria team blog, and uh, we'll put some links on the website for you. That's where you should get started with that. ADO.NET data services. System data services namespace. Check it out. On to our email. We have an email this morning from uh, Richard Dinell, and I'm sorry if I butchered your name, Richard. He's from Montreal, so it's probably like Dinell, maybe? I don't know. Uh, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot by even trying there. But he says, hi, dear Carl and Richard, I'm a history buff. While still working in the computer industry since 1979, I think history is a good outlet, at least for me. Listening to show number 366 was like going to an arcade and shooting once and hitting twice. He's talking, of course, about last Thursday's show with Eric Swedeen, who wrote a, a great book about the history of computing. And uh, Mark Dunn and I just totally geeked out with him. It was a lot of fun. Knowing where things come from gives us a better understanding of what we are and where we're going. John von Neumann is a hero for me, and when your guest talked about this man being known mainly for one page, he wrote about the architecture of computers. I instantly put a note on my laptop to write to you about this reflection. A page. A page. A simple page, but what a page. Every invention comes from an emerging idea. I call it a spark. In this case, it all started with this ingenious idea, the instruction pointer. Neumann, probably some others too, mainly imagined a register, for those who remember what a register is, joking of course, containing the address of the next instruction to execute and the fetch incrementing the register by the length of the instruction. After execution, readying for the next instruction to execute. He adds that the change in the value of the register will allow for jumps, which is like go-tos, and looping, opening the way to modern computing. Isn't it a genius spark, a spark of genius, writing the single sheet of paper? Thanks for taking the time to read this message. Continue producing your wonderful shows that are part of my outlets because learning is fun. Also, I insist for people to join their local user groups. It's a fun way to learn and meet nice people. Thank you very much, Richard. We'll be sending you a .NET Rocks mug. Of course, if you have something to say, as I said before, send it to us at .NET Rocks at franklins.net. And hey, you thinking of changing careers? You want something new to do? Want to hang out with some very cool people in New York City? You want to live in an apartment in New York City rent-free for a year while you're working and making a great salary there? Well, you got to check out shrinkster.com slash kh6 for the New York City tour that Infusion Development, friends of ours from New York, are uh, offering. They're looking for really good people, and they know that the people that listen to this show are really good, really talented people who care about their jobs. So that's why, that's why they're good friends of ours, and that's why they're going through us to find you. 
So if you want to do that, or hey, if you want to go to Dubai, I'm talking about Dubai. That's right, the Middle East, where all the money is, where the, they have silly, sick bandwidth and uh, every luxury that you can imagine. I'm talking about Dubai. Look it up. Well, there's opportunities there. And also, if you want to do any Surface development, you know, Microsoft Surface, that table that looks like uh, Minority Report, <laughs> the table computer, you know what I'm talking about. Well, if you want to do that too, just send me an email, carl at franklins.net. I'll hook you up with these people. Uh, more than 17 or 18 people have already joined uh, the Infusion team from listening to .NET Rocks, so check it out. Okay, it's time to introduce Udi. Udi Dahan is the software simplest, recognized by Microsoft Corporation with the coveted Most Valuable Professional Award for Solutions Architecture, now three years running. Udi is a connected technologies advisor working with Microsoft on WCF, WF, and Oslo. He also serves on the advisory boards of the Microsoft Software Factories Initiative and the Patterns and Practices PRISM Project. He provides clients all over the world with training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services, specializing in service-oriented, scalable, and secure .NET architecture design. Udi is a member of the European Speakers Bureau of the International .NET Association, a founding member of the Architect Training Committee of the International Association of Software Architects, a Dr. Dobbs-sponsored expert on web services, SOA and XML, a frequent conference presenter, and a regularly published author and all-around good guy. Udi Dahan, how are you? Very well, thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be back. Pleasure to have you back. Yeah, almost a year on the nose. Yep. Yeah, it was August, wasn't it? It was indeed. I remember being uh, a little intimidated by your resume back then, by your bio. Yeah, so that's that's a lot enough, was it? Yeah, we had to make it longer. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, quite a lot of stuff that you do there. Yeah, as uh, as Richard says, no rest for the wicked. And he should know. Yeah, thanks. Okay. <laughs> so, Udi, what is your day-to-day work like? Are you mostly uh, dealing just with architecture? Do you get a chance to write much code? I don't write much code, but I do get to figure out why code isn't working as expected. Right. Um, a, a lot of the, the original calls that I get from clients the first time around is, so we've got this problem with our site. Um, yeah. For a while, it works okay, and then it gets a little bit slow, and then servers start crashing. And somebody told us that you're the guy to talk to about servers crashing. And then I sort of dig around the innards and try to figure out what it is that they did that was was wrong. And sometimes it's it, it's as innocuous as a single line of code, but that that really has big ripple effects that just tear apart the architecture of the site and bring it to its knees. They, I mean, this is fun work for me, too. I, I love doing this. I mean, we never get to build a site from scratch. It's always you get pulled into after it's already failing. Actually, I have one client, one, that said, we want to do it right. So we're throwing everything away and we're building it from the ground up. And unless I'm very much mistaken, this past weekend, uh, they went into production and everything's looking great. Performance is wonderful and they're, they're, they're scaling out and everything's stable and they have a handle on what's going on with their site. So 
I, I'm very pleased that, that I was actually able to get into a, a greenfield project like that and have such a big impact on the direction they went and to see it, it work, you know, just straight through. Yeah, from so, version so one, that's, that's a rarity, definitely. But I guess they had yeah. good figures on how much performance and how much scale they were going to need. Um, well, well, they had baseline from their from their previous system. Right. But they also knew that, or, or one of the things financing this whole effort from the business side was, um, okay, we're, we're signing up a whole bunch of huge clients, and we've really got to do this right. Because the last time we tried doing that and just, you know, making the system work and scale however we could, we ran into lots of problems. So we, we really understand that we need to do this right. Otherwise, we could just lose those clients. And it is, it's funny how different you can design applications when, you know, depending on the scale requirements and the reliability requirements that people have. Oh, absolutely. So we bumped into each other at TechEd, and I think you and I were pretty much the only people talking about scaling ASP.NET. I hope that we're not the only people that are actually uh-huh. are trying to do it. <laughs> I'm sure the people are doing it, but, you know, actually doing sessions on it at TechEd is a rarity. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what what sort of sessions were you doing? Um, so one session I had was um, web scalability using an asynchronous systems architecture, which also dealt with the issue of caching, which you talked about in your session quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, but came at it from a, from a slightly different direction. Uh, one of the things that, that I was talking about quite a bit in my session was the use of publish-subscribe as a core pattern in, in solving the issue of keeping the cache up to date or keeping the right part of the right cache up to date, the right amount for a specific system. Because as we know, one of the problems with caches these days is that not all data behaves the same. And trying to fit all your heterogeneous data that needs to behave differently into one style of cache really just causes more problems than it solves. Well, yeah, caching is one of those things, and I don't know that I actually dug deep as deeply as you did into the pattern discussion of how to manage these things. But really, it was just a discussion of like people abuse caching because they don't have a plan. Well, it's the new shiny uh, toy, right? Now with the velocity coming out, that's that that's the new thing. It's the new kid on the block. But I mean, caching's far from new. I just got—I've had a sense, and I've seen this in a lot of different projects where caching benchmarks really, really well. That the guy sits down, figures out how to cache one, you know, set of classes, and fires it up, and shows dramatic performance improvements, ten times faster, that kind of thing. And it says, "Okay, we got to do this everywhere," mm-hmm. and it gets out of hand. Well, you know what they say about benchmarks. Benchmarks don't lie, but liars definitely do benchmark. Definitely. (laughs) So uh, let's talk more about, I mean, the the shiny part of caching is easy to look at, this idea that I pull the data out of the database, store it closer to the page so that it renders that much faster. But what's the ugly side of caching? Oh, the ugly side. The ugly side is what the cache does underneath the covers. it's all the things that, that, that can go wrong, that will go wrong. And, of course, when a developer runs it on their own machine, they're never, they never bring the system into those situations where that becomes a problem. It never goes wrong. Uh, right. Now, once you start bringing such a system into production and you've got all different kinds of users and they're all working on different kinds of data, um, all of a sudden, 
a naive caching strategy will bring your entire database or try to bring all your, <laughs> your entire database into memory uh, with that caching strategy. And the poor cache in trying to manage its memory will start paging things to disk and things that, if you just went to the database, might have taken you a couple of dozen milliseconds. Now, because everything has to be swapped in and out of memory into file and to look it back up again and then to load it back into memory, those same queries that could have been fairly fast if you just went straight to the database, now that you're using caching under a, a highly concurrent uh, multi-user scenario, those things can take seconds. Just because it, it, there's so much churn. Right, exactly. And, and the thing is, developers never see that. It always works on their machine just fine. Uh, they don't actually try to, to run the system with a thousand concurrent users, each one doing a different thing. Also, most of the load testing tools don't make it very easy to, to set up uh, different scenarios and to have users stick around on the site just long enough for their, their sessions to start getting stale before they start working again. Um, it, it's a scary world out there that uh, the tools kind of make it look like everything's rosy. You know, just just add this little API and you're good to go. But there are a lot of things that need to be thought about. Uh, just the issue of, is the cache up to date? Is what I'm showing my user up to date? There are certain parts of the business that, no, you actually have to show the user the most up-to-date data. And thinking that going to the cache is the way to do that may not always be true. And keeping that, of course, consistent with other bits of data that are cached on different machines is a total nightmare. And I've seen systems where in order to solve those problems, they've started putting transactions on top of their cache and started doing these gigantic two-phase commits that essentially locked out their entire web tier and their database while one user was working, just nice. in order that, for, for that user to see consistent data. And it's one of those cases where, you know, that, that silver bullet just blew their site just out of the water. Just for the record, I am still here. But uh, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm going to listen on this show because this is clearly Richard's area of expertise. Well, I, I, you know, scaling is a different world, right? I mean, we do so much work in ASP.NET that's got nothing to do with any of this. You can do so much right. and never deal with scaling problems. Most people, I find, don't encounter scaling problems until uh, you know, the site is already shipped. And then it's, they, they, it's like going to the grocery store hungry, Right, the site is now <laughs> failing under load, and you're trying to come up with yeah. intelligent solutions to how to fix that. Right. Well, at that point, if a system wasn't designed to scale, and again, at this point, it's not. I, I do want to call out that point. It's a design issue. It's not a technology issue. It's not something uh, that that some something that you're going to plug into your site that's going to automatically make everything better. Uh, but it really is understanding what it is your users are doing and what they try to do and what has to be consistent and what can be done in the background and what should be done in the background. Dealing with all these things, it's a design process. It's not, it's not a technology question. And a lot of times developers are, are really just looking for that, uh, just show me the API to use to plug into the current system that's currently failing in order to make things better. And, that is so difficult to do, and I'm not even talking about rolling it out, because in a case that, that a site is failing, sometimes the last thing that you want to do is to take down your entire web farm for a few minutes while you're trying to, to deploy that fix. 
And of course, it's one of those cases where um, if you're lucky enough to get into the situation where lots of users are hammering your site, it's very difficult to bring the system up. It's like after, after you've already been knocked down, they keep hitting you. It's that much more difficult to, to bring the new site up under load than it was the first time going into production. Yeah, so, you know, somebody's punching you in the face. You fall down. You think it's easy to get back up while they're still punching you in the face? I hope I'd never have to be in that situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) But, I mean, it's a valid point. We often do that. Like, the funny part is you're looking at the switch while this is going on and just seeing those lights pounding away and thinking, that's a lot of requests that aren't being served. Uh which is in it sort of maybe that's a segue into this idea of this this scalability is one thing it's serving all those customers but what about reliability i web to me has never been a particularly reliable service we we tend to let pages just fail you know even most failover strategies i've seen in web farms you lose a few connections along the way right right well i think that kind of has to do with the if I were to use a, a bad word, Web 1.0 design uh, that so many sites still are based on, even when they are using Ajax, they, they sort of come at it from a different way. Um, the thing is that HTTP is inherently unreliable. Um, there's really nothing that can be done about that from a broad Internet perspective. However, there are a number of things that, that can be done to make that problem have less of an impact. One of those is to understand that the browser is your friend and to specifically design the requests that are coming from the browser to your server so that if the browser doesn't get a response, you can, via JavaScript on the, on the browser side, resend that same request over again. Now, if we're talking about submitting an order or canceling an order, doing any kind of action towards data where you want your data to be consistent and you want to maintain reliability, uh, you really can't let users do that because they've been trained from years on the Internet. You do not push that submit button again, no matter what. And if it failed the first time, run away. (laughs) That site is not deserving of any of your personal data because it's probably not going to end up somewhere good. Especially yeah, if it's obviously not working. Why would you want to feed more into it? Right. So, so designing for that and coding for that on the browser, saying, okay, the user submitted it once, and then handle that whole sending a request to the server, did I get a response back in a, in a reasonable period of time? And if I didn't, send the request again and then design the request in such a way so that even if it is submitted a number of times, that the system will still be correct. So if we're talking about um, ordering something over the Internet, that's something that your browser could generate a GUID saying, yeah, I'm submitting an order here, and this is my number. And when the web server receives that, so the first time there are a number of ways that things can fail. The first time is from the browser to the server. The request just, just doesn't get across. Right. Another side is when the server is returning a response back to the browser, and that gets lost. So with this retry protocol, we can actually have a scenario where the server receives the same request twice. Now, by tagging that request with a GUID, the server can say, oh, I already processed that. 
And in that way, it can maintain its correctness. It can just send that response again. Yeah, it, 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 it checks to see the GUIDs there. It says, oh, it's already here. Just send back. Yep, right. I got it. Thanks for playing. Exactly. Now, from the user's perspective, they don't see any of this. Right. This should and all even, be under the hood. Exactly. And because HTTP itself is unreliable, it doesn't matter if the first request got lost or the second response got lost or whatever happened in the middle, we can make sure that um, from the user's perspective, until that point where we say, yeah, we've got your data, um, we can be fairly reliable even on top of an unreliable protocol. Now, are you saying that you want to have? Are you saying that you want to use a GUID because it's possible that two requests could be sent within the same second, or within the same time? Because instead of looking at like the date stamp of the request, oh, the, there's such a problem with uh, with date. Um, it, it it's so insidious, and developers use it way too much. Uh, first of all, is the assumption that all machines in the world have the same clock. They just don't. Well, I'm, you, we were talking about trying to discern the first request from the second one, and every request has a, a timestamp when it was received by the server, which comes from the server, right? Right. In HTTP headers. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough to discern between two requests? Well, it will most of the time until your servers move from regular time to daylight savings time and then back again. Right. So there's always some problem with dates. Right, right. And um, there's also the, the, the network time protocol that keeps servers in sync that can move clocks a bit. So even if you are sending a request one second after another because of some update to the, to the server's time, that, that is really fairly low level. It's not something yeah. that an IT operator or administrator would even notice. Right. Um, we, we, we'd assume that this is the second request. Yeah. Uh, that this second request is actually a first request or vice yeah, versa. It, it, it's just weird enough that you would occasionally get these glitches and, and they're tough right. to figure out. But I think the main reason you were talking about a good Udi was so that you could send the same request several times and have the exactly. server able to see these are actually all the same requests because they all have the exactly. same GUID. Oh, I see. Right. I see. Right. And it's also fairly simple to, to generate GUIDs. I mean, it doesn't require a very fancy library. No, no, and, it's easy. And um, yeah. it, it doesn't come with any difficult performance requirements on the browser side. It's something even a mobile device can do. I, I generally have had the sense that we're still underutilizing the browser side in a in a web application. That there's more horsepower there, there's more capability there. It's not being used very well, and and most times, I mean, even Microsoft's implementation of AJAX does its rendering on the server. Right. Right. So I just seem like we're we're ignoring the potential of the browser to cooperate in a sophisticated web app. I, I think that's very much the case, but it's not only an issue of horsepower, it's more an issue of state management, getting back to that reliability that you were talking about. Um, first of all, we, we, the fact that we can keep the browser responsive in the meantime, um, Ajax and, and all that kind of stuff, but more in terms of, well, we can actually design protocols for our system on top of HTTP to maintain its correctness. So until we tell the user, yeah, we've got your data, they're not going to assume that we've received it. Okay. Hmm. However, if the page goes blank or something starts spinning or something like that, um, and we don't ever respond to them, that, that Web 1.0 style, um, that, that blank page that you get back is the scariest thing for users especially when they've submitted data. or yeah. Again, because they've been taught, um, no, don't refresh the page, and if you go back, it might break the site, so be careful. And they kind of get into this 
freeze mode. What do I do? I don't know. Maybe I'll email somebody and ask what I should do. But I don't want to refresh. I don't want to resubmit. And if I go back and I look at my status, it may not be up to date and all sorts of other problems. Just by turning the browser into, um, you might call it, our user proxy. So the way that our server talks to the browser, it actually is a distributed system. And I think that that's one of the the, the forward-looking things that's going to be coming in, in web development is that this isn't just a web app. This is a distributed system. There is a client-side component. There is a server-side component. And the way these things talk to each other, yes, it may be going over HTTP, but we do, get, we do actually get to decide what the protocol is. And then we can design that protocol in such a way that it'll be reliable and robust and even if HTTP loses some data, we'll be able to get around that. And, and there are a whole host of things that we can do. Um, one of the talks that I gave, a, a theater talk following up on my uh, scalability talk at TechEd, dealt with one of the, the very difficult problems with web applications today is what do you do when the processing of some requests takes a very long time? And when I said very long time, it could be because a user has to authorize something or just we're talking about some serious number crunching in the background. Something that in the background we're going to be doing asynchronously, but how do we actually connect that to the user's expectation of a regular request response semantic? How long are we talking when we say very long? Five minutes? Very long can be from one minute to a day to a week. One of the things that, that, that I've been seeing in web apps, or rather, I call them composite web apps, is that similar to something like iGoogle or something like that, users have various windows onto the world. So while one window, they may submit a request saying, I want to go on vacation, and until they get a response back saying your, your vacation has been processed, it's been accepted, or it's been denied, some user another actually has to, to take action. In the meantime, that window shouldn't allow the user to do anything with vacation. However, all those other little windows or web parts, they can let the user continue doing other work as well. So when the user is presented with a web app that's more of a, a dashboard onto various domains, well, each domain can be different, right? Right. And we really need to design our system in such a way that well, even though some things can be happening fairly quickly, say in the period of a minute, if we were to poll every 10 seconds, that would just totally bring a server that's processing things that takes days and days to its knees. And vice versa, we wouldn't want things that can be happening quickly to, to, to poll them every hour, just because there are some things that can take days. Well, it, generally speaking, polling is just not a good idea. Especially on a browser. Well, polling is has been somewhat um, misaligned. It's, it's considered a bad choice, but over the web, we don't really have very much other choices because we can't initiate a connection from the server back to the client. Right. So keeping uh, a connection open is one option, and IIS doesn't like that. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and another option is for the browser to pull. The thing is, what does it pull? If it were to simply pull a static resource, that wouldn't load up our servers very much at all. 
apparently web servers are designed extremely well when it comes to serving up static content. And if the static content that you're serving is the way that you encode responses, apparently you can handle a huge amount of load, even with polling. So, so painting this in sort of a realistic scenario, are you essentially saying we, in order to provide a monitoring of a long-running process, what you'd be doing is writing out a static resource file periodically? Um, that's one way to look at it. Think about it like this. Um, what we'd have is our browser calls a web service on the server. Right. The web service generates a kind of ticket and says to the client, you know, you are um, customer number 1,235. And your response is going to be at this resource right here, and it gives it some, some URI to a static resource. On top of that, it can also say, and you should be pinging this resource uh, once every one second, 10 second, one hour, one day. Right. At that point, when the browser receives that, it turns around to the server and says, um, do you have my resource ready for me? Now, that kind of request, that basic HTTP request for a static resource, is something that doesn't even get to ASP.NET. Yeah, it's IIS. Entirely by IIS on the native pipeline, it is blazingly fast. Okay? Now, by also adding that bit that telling the client, check this resource once every T seconds, we can modulate dynamically what kind of native load we're getting. So for things that are going to take days and days, we can say, oh, just you know, ping me every hour or so. For things that can take up to a minute, ping me every 10 seconds. And that way we can actually take a look at, for things that go fast, make the user get a quick response. For things that go slow, don't overload my server. Oh, and by the way, my IT operators are going to want to fiddle with these numbers to see what kind of load characteristic they're going to have on the site. Right. Yeah, this is good instrumentation for how things are going. Well, right. They, they, you have all the IES performance monitors. You can see what kind of requests you're getting and from which clients you're getting. You can roll them up into a dashboard, and your operators can see what's going on, who's received a request, how timely it was, and then they can fiddle around with the parameters. But again, this, this style of programming is by saying, I'm going to take control over the protocol between the browser and the server. I'm not going to just abdicate that to ASP.NET. Right. Well, and this idea that I'm going to deliberately do it in such a way that I don't get to ASP.NET, which in some ways for a developer feels like giving up control. Now I'm not in my common code base. I'm looking somewhere else. Right. I'm just wondering how comfortable users are with a you know day-long running process against a web browser you know, if they want to reboot or anything like that, I guess you've got to think through, can I give them a link that they can save so that they can come back here later? I can't count on any session cookies. I mean, all of that, it's so long that all of those dynamics change. Well, right. But then you've got, again, the, the, the newer generation of uh, browser-side uh, libraries like Google Gears that enable you to take control of what data has actually persisted. The browser is becoming this place where you not only can you program, but it's becoming easier to program. It's becoming easier to manage your state because more and more people are, are hitting this, this boundary saying, if we do everything server-side, 
we just can't scale. Right. It's, or, or it's not that we can't scale because scalability is a cost function. Rather, it is so expensive to scale that we need to start firing our users, sending them away. It's just not worth it. Right. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik, and uh, let you know that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik. You know summer is in full swing now, and you're probably lying on the beach, but our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight? That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. The other one that, that's recent is jQuery. It's just this, these, these increasingly sophisticated libraries on the browser side that are able to create more of a, of a smart client. Goodness knows I shouldn't be saying this. A smart <laughs> client model on the browser. Right. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it's the solution for everything, but again, what I'm saying is when you're looking at scaling a site, you do need to actually take a look at, at all of these options and make the trade-offs yourself. This isn't just, okay, we're going to build an ASP.NET site, drag and drop some stuff and go, ship it to production. But really taking a look at what you need and you know how much is it going to cost you to develop and what kind of user experience you're going to get. And when looking at what kind of response times you've got to give to your users. And again, if you're building a, a composite application where on that same web page you want to be doing a whole bunch of different things, um, you're going to start seeing more and more of this stuff coming up. And now users, they're getting used to more of this kind of environment. And, and sites that offer them that kind of interactivity, yes, you can do more things at once. And when we get a response back, you'll have it ready. Um, just, you know, that could be popping up inside the browser as some kind of toast or, or whatever kind of solution that we have. Um, it, it is more, um, I don't want to say smart client kind of development, but a smart client user experience that we're looking at offering here. Right. And part of me was thinking about this and thinking, why wouldn't I just build a smart client here? Why am I going to jump through these hoops? Well, it, it's that classic uh, rich versus reach argument, Right. Uh, some users or some organizations will just not install anything. Right, or or can't install anything. The machine is that well, locked down. Plus, they already have websites. They want to continue developing. Well, and there's an awful lot of infrastructure already in place with a website. Like, there's a lot of advantages here. Although, you know, if Tim Huckabee was in the room, he'd be yelling right now. You can build a pretty lightweight, smart client that's calling to a web service and... You And a lot of that sort of persistent stuff becomes very easy. Right, but then you still have to deal with where is the data going to be stored locally and and all of that. I mean, what, 
yes, it's you can make it lightweight, but then you get into the issues of, well, what happens when the user's machine restarts? And what happens when your server restarts? And in dealing with all of that, it's none of the problems magically go away um, with any solution. Right. Rather, you just have more tools in your belt in order to deal with them. In some ways, I think it's in some ways with the new security models like UAC and so forth, the smart client is now living under similar security restrictions to the to the web client. Exactly. It's, it's Which a is funny why state so many organizations are, are waiting with Vista because it's just <laughs> going to break so many of their apps. Yeah, because their apps are breaking rules. They told them not to break ages ago, but it hasn't had consequence up till now. Yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about this whole message recovery thing, do you, do you want to sort of quote some numbers? How long should you be waiting before you make another request? Like, what's reasonable? Oh, that that really depends on on the action that you're taking. Um, if you're talking about uh, doing some kind of calculation, and the calculation can take a while to be processed, uh, you might decide to wait longer until you resend it. Um, however, once again, once you start once you start designing your protocol, then you can have multiple responses that come back. One of them that says, "Yeah, I've received your request. Now it's being calculated." No, you don't have to resend it to me. Right now, so, I, I'm confer- I, I've given. I, here's your receipt. I definitely got that. Exactly. So, so part of that is is managing when the browser is going to be resending it. So, so actually saying, well, if I don't have only a single response coming back, saying, you know, okay, here's the response. This is the result of the calculation. But rather, I can say, okay, I I've received your request and now I'm processing it or your order's been uh, tentatively approved, or whatever's going on in the background, um, that makes it that much easier to save on those resends. One thing I do want to call out, though, um, because we we started getting into the updating data, this stuff also holds true for, um, for, for just a regular website in how the browser gets data. So if we look at your average website, there's a whole bunch of information around the dynamic part, or you've got various dynamic parts that show things differently. Um, if you're looking at Amazon, for example, you have you know your wish list and what other customers are buying and uh, the menu that's somewhat dynamic as well. You don't have to view all those things as a single web page, right? Because the the rate at which the site is going to be changing its menu structure is going to be quite a bit slower than your wish list. Right. And what other customers are buying is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So treating all of those things as just a single web page. It's something to be recomputed every request. Exactly. So you're saying, wait a minute, now I want to cache that, or I want to cache parts of that. The thing is that you can take those, those same things that... You used to cache. When I say cache, I mean cache from the way that the ASP de- developers are used to doing it, saying, okay, we're going to take our menu and we're going to go put that in the cache. We're going to take this data, the, the other customers bought this, these items and put that in the cache. But actually taking that out and leveraging the web. And what I mean by that is saying other customers bought these kinds of similar items. Um, say that changes once every half an hour. You can cache that in memory, or what you can do is you can create a static resource, which could be XML or it could be HTML, 
that your browser is going to be pulling from. So instead of actually hitting your server, what it can be doing is it could be hitting one of the proxies all over the web for hmm. that static resource. Hmm. Well, now you're talking about sort of the Akamai model? It's, it's kind of the Akamai model, but it's, it's simpler than that. You don't even need uh, an explicit content distribution network. What is right. the Akamai at, model, Richard? I'm sorry. We, we, we're talking about contra, content distribution networks, which is exactly where Reedy was headed, where I'm able to, when, when, I get, when sites get to a certain size, it makes sense to move those static resources into the services that will serve them faster and closer to the customer. I mean, Akamai owns like 30,000 servers scattered around the world. So they're able to on the fly figure out where the nearest server is to you. And so your images, your CSS, your, your, your JS, those kinds of things all come from there. And it just sort of unloads your server. But there are more. That's only one flavor of content delivery network. And it's one of these things that until you get into scaling, you just don't ever hear about. Right. Okay. Now, the thing is that um, even regular ISPs, when they have static resources going through them, if you're just hitting a regular HTML page and the server said, okay, this HTML page uh, is going to be valid for the next half an hour, all the other requests coming to that same ISP for that same resource are going to be served by the ISP. It's not even going to get to the source server. And we can make use of that behavior of the Internet, of the web, when we're designing our web pages. So instead right. of looking at that, that web page that has a whole bunch of different parts that have different levels of dynamicness as a single web page, we can look at it as a collection of static resources that each of them have a specific period of time that it's being cached. So one of them could be refreshed once a day, another one once a week, another one once every hour. Flashdot, for instance, generates their homepage once every 10 minutes. Hmm. And what that does is that for ISPs all over the world, they actually maintain a copy of Flashdot's page for 10 minutes. And every single request from every single hacker and developer wannabe all over the world uh, to that site is not even going to get to the slash dot servers. It's just going to hit their local ISP and get a response back. So when we're talking about scaling to massive numbers of users that all want to be looking at similar data, what we do is we take all of that information and cache it not on our servers, but all over the Internet. And that's how we actually with a small number of servers, can be serving millions of users. And this is really just markup. This is a way of marking the right. page so that these high-request pages are... You can tell these other servers, you're allowed to cache this, and here's how long. Right. Now, the thing is, what we're doing here is taking that to the next step. Not only at the page level, the page that we're showing to the users is actually, uh, to use a Web 2.0 word, it's a mashup. It's saying, right. okay, I'm going to go get this static resource and I'm going to put it over here. I'm going to get that static resource and put it over there. This is what the browser is doing. The same way it picks up on images, for instance, if those images were on a content delivery network. So we can do that for our data as well. And, that's, and, and when we take those two things together, the way that we update it and the way that we get data, and we leverage the web in our design and we make use of these protocols, we can scale to ridiculous numbers of users and give them really good performance if we're talking about how quickly they'll get a response back and just maintaining the stability of our servers. Because 
again, like we, like we said before, if there was a problem with our site and it's not scaling well, what we've done is we've offloaded a whole bunch of load, making it easier to roll out patches. So as we want to version our system and put out new functionality, we won't have that problem of millions of users punching us in the face while we're trying to get up. Right. Now, I'm trying to envision, you were talking about, say, a menuing system, which changes relatively infrequently, utilizing this sort of content delivery model. So is it a, like a descriptor file for the menu that the browser renders? Oh, it's, it's a lot simpler than that. It's just XML. Right. The menu itself, it says, okay, the structure of menu and the links, that's just an XML file, Okay. But because we've generated this file and it's now a static resource, the CDNs will pick it up, and right. guys can now, uh, browsers can now render the in, and request and render the entire menu without ever touching the original server. Exactly, and we can do that for all sorts of pieces of data uh, in our sites. So I'm not talking about master pages here. I'm talking to the next level. If you're talking about, if you look at big newspaper sites, what they're needing to do these days. They're getting a lot more dynamic. And, right. and those sorts of things saying, well, we can't do the whole page because so much of the page is specific on who the user is that that's a problem for us. Well, and, it, and, and that really comes down to individual stories. So the unit of granularity for a newspaper has got to be the story. Well, right. But then you've got things like how many comments were on this story. Right. Now, comments are, are, are something that even though they're dynamic – we don't really have to go all the way to our web servers and all the way to our database to get that information. That's something that makes sense to cache not only on our site, but all over the Internet. Comments are tolerant to latency. Exactly. And there, there are all sorts of tricks that we can do so that when the user posts their comment, that they'll see their comment, again, by making use of the browser, and other users that are coming in won't see that user's comment until, say, half an hour later. So users, whenever they post a comment, they want to see it right away, right? They're not going to be saying, oh, yeah, we're going to show you your comment in half an hour. They don't want that. No. They want to see it right away. But that user's browser says, well, I know that this user put this comment in. So I can take that comment as well as the static resource with all the other 20 comments on there and show to this specific user yeah, your comment number 21, and here's your comment right here. But a half an hour from now, when it actually gets back and gets pushed through the cache, it might be comment 25. Exactly. But at that point, the user won't care anymore, will they? No. They want to see that when they wrote their comment, the comment showed up. They probably don't, won't look at it again. Exactly. There are all sorts of, I don't want to call them tricks that we can do, but all sorts of techniques that we can make use of when we're designing our systems, dynamic as they may be, that when we start talking about, about caching and the use of CDNs and the use of static resources and things like polling and using publish subscribe, there are so many tools that we have in our belts that most, that most developers aren't even used to seeing. And then the question becomes, given that I've designed a website in a, a straightforward ASP.NET AJAX request response manner, and now my system is just falling over. How do I solve that problem? That's a difficult problem to solve. You know, the smart thing, don't get yourself into that situation in the first place. Yeah, don't place. get there. <laughs> but it's in, you know, this is so far removed. When I start talking to, 
to uh, you know groups of ASP.NET developers about these sorts of technologies. It's so far removed from the dropping a web control on a page and hooking it to a data table model they've learned. I don't think we have good tools right now to break out that granularity of data and allow CDNs to take on that work. Well, actually, the code itself isn't that complicated. No, but it isn't written automatically either. Okay, but I mean, if you look at the things that developers do in terms of the amount of code that they write, in order to try to scale a system after uh, it started falling over, they write massive amounts of code and cache this and tighten loops over there and uh, write this to this local web server and synchronize with remote web servers. And they start writing tons and tons of code to solve these problems after the fact. So if anything that we're looking at comparing is that, you know, what what was the resulting amount of code and how complex was it um, doing it the so-called straightforward way and doing it the inherently scalable way. And after I've seen both sides, I can tell you that um, if you design for these things, the code itself is simpler. It's smaller, it's bite-sized. I mean, writing a static resource is trivial. It's trivial. I mean, developers do that when trying to scale a site anyway. Right. But they do it non-strategically. It's more along the lines of, um, can we bang out some things to make things a little bit better? Um, writing JavaScript, well, these days lots of developers are, are getting down to the JavaScript level in order to give that, that high level of user experience because the Ajax toolkits, as good as they are, um, once you step away from the grid that does just about everything by itself, and you try to do other pieces, like, for instance, um, when something gets selected in the grid, change something somewhere else, developers start writing JavaScript as well. So it's not like they, um, that they didn't need to know JavaScript before, and now all of a sudden they do. All these technologies, they're using them already. What's missing is the design component. Yeah. What's missing is, is sort of coming, somebody coming and saying, do it like this, and here's why. And again, it's it's nothing of a of a tool sense because, like we said before, we're getting better tools. Developers are wrapping up these libraries and making them more of it more available. But a lot of application developers out there saying, "Okay, I've got this new tool. What do I use it for?" Yeah, that's the hard question that they have. It's saying, "Okay, I've got all these tools. What do I use them for? How do I design a site?" with this thinking in mind. And none of that information is out there these days. You know, it's people like you and me that that are actually doing these things. We're so busy actually doing it, we don't actually have enough time to go around talking about it. Yeah, you know, you you don't find a book on this. I mean, I know you just got an article out the door. I've gotten an article out the door recently, but that's about it. Like, there's just not a lot of time. We're so busy working to really help people understand all of this. Right. Well, you know, you're working on uh, on clients' projects, and then you got yeah. speaking, and there's so much to do that um, even when you do get an article out the door, um, there's just so much you can talk about in six thousand words. Right? <laughs> if you're going to explain one good idea in six thousand words, I mean, that's all you're going to get. Right, and, and in this conversation, we've gone over like ten. <laughs> yep. So let's jump back a little bit here. Uh, we started out talking about caching and sort of danced around some of the big issues on that. Uh, and 
to me, it sounds to me, you're really describing a different method of caching where it, I, when I say caching, I usually think about using the caching objects in ASP.NET. Uh, and now I'm struggling with memory management and mostly and also struggling with expiration that as soon as I'm in a web farm, like it's just a bear to keep all those caches in sync. But it seems to me it's somewhat easier if I can when I have relatively static resources to push them on into the static form so that I'm not even touching ASP done anymore to cache those items. Right, right. So, again, it's, it's one of those things saying just by looking at the page itself and saying, well, what data is being shown here and how up-to-date does it need to be? Um, those kinds of thoughts that, or the, those thought processes that you go through when you think about what can I cache in ASP.NET, you can ask those same questions that, well, instead of caching it in ASP.NET, I have a number of ways of caching it, and, and different ones make sense in different ways. So those memory management problems, a lot of them go away uh, just because you're not keeping them in memory. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, disk is so much more available. And the funny part is it will still get picked up in memory by IIS's own kernel cache. Exactly. Which won't be part of the .NET memory space, which is the thing we're wrestling with constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, all those threading problems of keeping things up to date. And I look for some data and it isn't there. So should I block the thread or should I... Retry again. All of those difficult <laughs> problems. Uh, I, I, I walk through this in sessions all the time. The whole check to see if the cache item is populated. Oh, it's not populated. Okay, block the thread because we don't want multiple instances trying to populate the cache item at the same time. Now right. go po- populate the item, and be, be, but also check again after the block. Is the item populated now? Because you, right. I've had three or four or a hundred requests held up by that thread block, and then they all try and populate the item. Yeah. And, and if you're talking about auto-refreshing of the cache, then you can have a hundred threads hitting the database. Absolutely. Trying to load things into memory, and, and, and that also thrashes your memory. So th- there are all sorts of technical gotchas down there uh, when you try to, to, to solve the problems with the wrong tool. Um, that, that actually get you more trouble than the, the original thing. You know, just go to the database. Yeah, just go back to the database. So one of the things I've been recommending, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is instrumenting your caching code. How I need to, how often do you populate the cache item, and how often do you expire it? And how many times do you have good hits, like you hit the cache item and you used it, so that I could actually get a sense for, under load, we never get to use this cache item. We're always repopulating it. Um, I, I'd say that, that monitoring is the backbone of any scalable website because if you don't, if you have no measures, you don't know what's wrong. You don't know what to fix. And, and caching is just one part of that. That's yeah. true for, for your database and it's true for, for your middle tier. It's true for everything. One of the biggest problems these days is the site is slow. Why? We don't know. Yeah, we don't really and know. And then and looking then at Perfmon, speculating. Oh, yeah, Perf the number Mon. of times, <laughs> number of times I've had folks say, "I know what I have to fix. I just got to get to work." And I'm like, "I don't know how you know that. I would really like to collect some empirical data around this first. We don't have time. We've got to fix the code." Right. I'm like, okay, well, you call me back when you have time to actually test. And after a few weeks of churning on code and not getting any results, then they're like, "Okay, I guess we have time to test now." Yeah, and, and again, it's one of those things that 
the more feature-rich a site, the more difficult it is. If you're talking about long-running background processes, um, just knowing if a process has completed or not um, is a difficult question to answer by looking at PerfMon. Yep. PerfMon is a long way. And the funny part is so few people even look at PerfMon at all. But then when you do finally get good at studying PerfMon and watching what's going on, it's fairly abstract from your code. So I can see that you're, you're, you're churning the worker process or you're, you're firing off, you're causing GCs to fire off regularly and it's tossing cache items out of memory. But which items, what processes are causing those things? That is not going to be answered from PerfMon. Right. And, and, and again, the, the, the relative importance of that. I mean, you may have one kind of item or one class that gets regularly thrown out of the cache, but if that's something that isn't used by many pages or if it's used by pages, those pages uh, can actually render without that information or even if that information is shown incorrectly, then that's not a big deal. Then you can yeah. say, well, yes, I may be treating this data poorly, but that's not what we need to fix. It's not actually hurting me. Right. And, and, and that's a big problem that I see is that, again, when developers get into those, that, that crunch mode, you know, we, we got to get, the, we, we gotta get the, the fix out. We got to get the fix out. And they're looking at Perfund saying, okay, I see a problem. They see a technical problem, but they don't necessarily see that if I fix this, will, will it make the business problem of the site being slow go away? Because maybe we can just say, yeah, that's a technical problem. Ignore it. Go fix more important things that may be technically less interesting or less visible, but that's what we need to fix. But actually, we return better results. You know, if you exactly. got rid of your two megabyte images, this page would perform, perform so much better <laughs> than you spending the weekend rewriting the entire page. Exactly. It sounds like to do what you guys are talking about, it just takes an awful lot of work. To, you know, scalability just takes a lot of work. And to get back to your point, Udi, the the original point that you made, that people tend to do this, tend to think about scalability when it's too late. Well, it tends to take a lot of thinking. Right. I wouldn't say that it takes a lot of work, but it takes a lot of thinking. Smart Uh, work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I would argue that it's mostly about diagnostics. Once you actually know what the problem is, it's usually pretty easy to fix it. But Finding the problem right. is the hard part. Right. And again, in that original V1 push to get the to get the site into production, monitoring is usually not one of the things that companies like to invest. Hmm. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't get around there. Okay, one more topic. We're just about out of time. Expiration. You know, one of the things that content delivery networks have in common with a lot of other basic caching techniques is they expire over time. But I find developers really want to just expire by logic. That when the when the actual inventory count gets updated, then you throw out the product list. Yep. They don't want to do it by time. And that, to me, becomes an utter nightmare as soon as we're in any sense of complexity at, at all. As soon as we're on a web farm, as soon as the, you know, the, the load is high. Expiring over time is just so much more efficient. Any, any other ideas? Um, that, that's one of the cases where I said, you know, just when we started out, that uh, publish-subscribe model helps immensely. Um, by, by making it possible for your mid-tier to publish an event that says uh, inventory has dropped uh, beneath a threshold or just inventory changed, 
that's something that all that all your servers in your web tier can get. Right. And um, and then they can go and update the cache. That's if they're using a, a simple in-process cache. Now, if you're talking about um, again that 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 web farm kind of caching, um, there are a number of other tricks that you can do um, in order to reliably, but without churning everybody, uh, get that out there. But the first part is really so critical: is that being able to take that um, something logically interesting has happened and to push that from your back end to your front end cache is really just the linchpin of the solution because without that, you can't do anything. And by enabling whatever in your web tier to subscribe to those events, uh, this brings you 99% of the way there. The last bit is just saying, okay, go update the cache. And, and the challenge here is if, if I got 10 web servers pounding away and, and every 100 milliseconds, something's getting sold, which is good. Business is mm-hmm. good. I've got to sort of modulate how frequently am I going to update that item because it's being – I'm constantly tossing it away from the cache that, in that sense. Oh, that, again, that, that's one of those issues of design. It's saying, um, do we really need to show the actual number of widgets in inventory? Right. I mean, does it really have to be up-to-date to the millisecond? You know, if it was up-to-date every 10 minutes, that, that would be okay, wouldn't it? That would be close enough. Well, and, and I solved a, a customer's problem like that by forcing them, essentially, to implement a backorder system. Let us take the chance that once in a while we'll sell something we don't have to make every... So that in 99% of the cases, things work great and nice and fast. And in that one rare case, we backorder it. And maybe that customer is unhappy, but they will eventually get their thing in the meantime, everybody else didn't have to wait for the order to constantly keep that inventory up to date. Right. And, of course, there are other things that we can do in the background. When, when, when One thing is to implement that backorder system. Another thing is to have uh, another process that's looking at inventory coming in all the time or, or orders coming in all the time and doing some kind of forecasting and saying, okay, I see that this item is selling really well. And it's going to take me, I don't know, a month to replenish the inventory. And at this rate, we're going to be out of it, you know, in, in a month and a half. So I'm going to start pre-ordering things already. Start raising order levels and so forth. Right. So just by, again, by having that, that ability to have our ordering system publish and saying, okay, someone's ordered five widgets, someone's ordered 10 widgets. And having that, that ongoing graph of what's happening with orders being published out to other parties then they can hook into those things as well and saying, okay, I'm going to do, start doing some real-time inventory management around those orders. I don't have to wait until I'm out of inventory to say, oh, crap, now it's back-ordered. How do I solve that problem as fast as possible? I can start designing processes into my organization that, well, yes, once in a while things will be back-ordered. There's really nothing you can do about it. But when they are back-ordered, um, we already have inventory coming in on the way to be able to process those back orders that much faster. So while our users may not be thrilled that it's on back order, if they get it two days later than if they than if it wasn't back ordered, wow, that's not such a big deal after all, is it? So it's really more of a, a global architecture perspective than saying um, this uh, nuts and bolts uh, caching expiration problem. How do we solve that? Or rather, this overall business problem of how do we handle orders and what do we do about it? 
know, how, how should we handle that from a global perspective? Well, keeping all the pieces fairly simple. Yeah, I think this is why we make it as consultants, because I'm able to spin that problem into features for the app that the customer is actually going to love. Right. And that's really the, the thinking you've got to do. It's not just about solving the caching problem. It's about recognizing that a back order system and an order anticipatory system are good for business. We will sell more if we do it this way. We will sell more. We'll be uh, responding to orders faster. Um, this is going to decrease the number of customer service calls. What's going on with my order? You said it was back ordered. Do you have the inventory yet? Decreases the amount of customer service personnel that we have. Yep. It's just all goodness for the entire organization. Everything is better. Udi, this is too much fun. we got to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Carl, did you learn anything today? Yeah, absolutely. I learned that I kind of like sitting on the sidelines. Oh, you do, do you? Yeah, it's kind of a... So do I get, to get, I get the closing line today? Is that what you're telling absolutely. me? Absolutely. Go for All it. All right. Udi Dahan, thanks so much for coming on Dotnet Rocks. It was my pleasure. And we'll talk to you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.